0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of QuestionMark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we're pleased to talk with Steve Debt, CEO and a founding partner at Capstan. He received his education in English, Dutch, French and German, but he's essentially an autodidact and a field practitioner. In 1998, Steve was sought out to organize the translation verification of the OECD PISA 2000 instruments. And since Capstan's creation in 2000, Steve has supervised Linguistic Quality Assurance in PISA and in over 35 international surveys and polls. His translatability assessment methodology is applied in small and large multilingual projects in both the private and the public sector. Steve is the driving force behind Capstan's adaptive strategy. Welcome, Steve.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for those kind words. I'm very excited myself, very happy to be here and and share some of our experiences in uh, assessment, translation and adaptation.
0: So the question I like to ask everybody at the start of this podcast is how did you come into the assessment world?
1: Well, I, I think there's always an element of, of lack involved. Uh, I was the, the owner of a relatively small translation agency um, in the in the late 90s, and um, I was translating a lot of education content at the time, and I was often asked to translate education content into languages that I did not master. So I would always hire uh, two linguists and possibly a subject matter expert, and, and I would have one linguist translate and the second one review. And then with the subject matter experts, I would review the, the revision feedback. And I often found those, those um, reviews very cosmetic, very uh, preferential, adding one's own style, adding one's own touch. And so uh, I have a, a passive knowledge of a number of languages. And so I decided to start writing um, guidelines for reviewers. Uh, with uh, the motto, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And if you want to fix it, tell us why. And I developed that and started working with research institutes and universities to, to validate this approach. And while this was still a work in progress, the, the OECD issued a call for tenders for, for PISA. That was for the the very first PISA, PISA 2000. They issued the call for tenders in 97. And as luck would have it, uh, one of my main clients was a, a university in, in Belgium. And that university, the University of Liege, became part of the first PISA consortium. And, and they asked me, um, Steve, do you think you could organize if countries were to translate and adapt the assessment instruments do you think you could organize some sort of linguistic quality control an equivalence check uh, to to ensure psychometric e- equivalence well, i say yes yes okay i'll 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 sort it out i'll figure it out and, and uh Then I wondered how I would go about doing that. But that was my entry in assessments. I was already in education. Assessments was, uh, here we are, um, we have to ensure comparability across languages of uh, 30, 34, I think, language versions of of, uh, assessment data collection instruments.
0: So I think some of our listeners might not know what the PISA program is. Can you just explain it?
1: Sure, sure. The Programme for International Student Assessment uh, is um, an international assessment that measures knowledge and skills in 15-year-old students worldwide. So it's an age-based test. Uh, it takes place just uh, about at the end of compulsory schooling. At the time, it was only the OECD countries, so there were 32 OECD countries, and and now um, there are 89 countries participating in PISA 2021. It's a survey that takes place every three years, And um, there's always a main domain. Um, It's rotating. It can be reading literacy, then science literacy, then mathematical literacy. Um, And as the domains rotate, uh, the minor domains use uh, trend material, which means assessments that have already been administered in previous cycles to measure trends in education and and the outcomes of those assessments are used by education policy makers education stakeholders uh, uh, school principals um worldwide to benchmark their their own performance uh, compared to other countries and to to take uh, measures for example to reduce the impact of social economic status on performance gender equity and and others
0: and the, and the aim is that the test is given in different languages, but that the results are comparable. Is that right?
1: It's a strange thing in comparative studies internationally. Um, In fact, researchers take linguistic equivalence as a given, because if you are going to compare the results in Romania, in China, in Australia, and in Canada, um, and those, those tests have been administered in different languages, and you're going to publish results that compare the data and the performance of those different countries, in fact, you you assume that the tests are equivalent. And in fact, there's more to it than than meets the eye. This psychometric equivalence or functional equivalence is very, very hard to attain. You will find that even with an excellent translation, uh, there are some perception shifts that can be due to a different culture. There are different differential item functions or item biases that cannot be attributed to the actual translation. Uh, that it's, it's a very, very complex um, undertaking. But uh, indeed, the idea is to have, uh, in, in PISA 2021, we have, I think, 47 languages and 101 locales, so, locales are language-country combinations, and they are all deemed to be comparable assessments.
0: So, I'd like to get on in in a few minutes to some good practice in translating tests and what you can pass on to other people as a result of this. But do you want to tell me a little bit about your background prior to that story, in which languages and, and how many languages do you speak?
1: It's very difficult to speak um, about knowledge of languages in the sense that speaking a language is not the same as reading a language. Understanding the grammatical structure of a language does not mean that you can speak it. Let's say I I went to school in in four different languages. and, and variants of those languages, Dutch, German, uh, English and, and French in, in South Africa, Germany and Belgium. And, and, then, um, and I worked in South America for some time and, and picked up Spanish, but still as a student. And I, I thought that those languages I had learned as a child um, seemed to have certain things in common and were at the same time very different. But um, I wanted to study the theory of language so as to, to understand the common framework. I studied linguistics, but first, first classics, Latin and Greek which may seem a relatively useless uh, uh, discipline since we're studying languages that are not spoken anymore. But first of all, the the literature of the classics is a foundation of Western civilization. But secondly, the the structure of the language, the cases, the declensions uh, that are common to all Indo-European languages are are a fascinating basis to uh, um, understand how, language functions and also how uh, we perceive things differently depending on the language we we master after that i went to oriental ph- philology and comparative linguistics i, I even Envisaged um, a research career, but everything moves so slowly in research, and I had the urge to um, to change things, to be to be active, and and so eventually went into the the private sector and and started translating professionally rather than doing research.
0: And can you tell me about Capstan, the uh, company you founded and uh, still run?
1: Capstan is a is a product of PISA, so to say. So when when I was commissioned to ensure the linguistic quality control and the the cross-language comparability in PISA, I had to train people uh, in a number of languages to examine those translations and report on residual issues in a standardized way. So this training was very specific. I had uh, the help of a number of researchers. I took a course in psychometrics before setting up the checklists. Um, we tried to identify linguistic features that, that drove the psychometric properties of the assessment items and, um, and to put that into a, a taxonomy. And so these, these verifiers, these linguists who had worked on PISA, they were quite specialized, and I saw that this had never been done before i knew that there were other international projects and so i thought it was worthwhile exploring whether this this knowledge that a group of 30 linguists now had acquired combined with the with the analysis of the feedback with the, the empirical results of this work whether this could be transformed into a, a scalable business model And I asked one of the verifiers, uh, Andrea Ferrari, uh, the Italian verifier of PISA 2000, who had clearly understood the task to the core, a very, very bright man and incredibly honest. I had asked him whether um, he wanted to set up a company with me in, in 2000, and he said, well, I don't have anything planned for the coming month, so let's give it a try. And he's still my associate 20 years later. Uh, and, and then, yes, from, from, from there, we went to the IEA, that's the International Association uh, for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement in, in Boston and Amsterdam, and showed them uh, how we had verified PIsa and I asked them whether they were interested to um, give us a try with, uh, with Tims and pearls and um, and other international surveys they were doing, and that worked out well and and from there our, our reputation grew. I would just like to add that that Capstan initially verified translation produced by others, and then the the analysis of the feedback showed that there were many, many recurring issues. Um, and if you have, say, 40 language versions, out of which there is added information in a given question for 12 language versions, to me, it says something about the source of that question rather than uh, the quality of the work of the 12 translators who added information. And so Capstan gradually shifted its focus from validating translations to preparing translation and validation projects, to setting up workflows, uh, preparing glossaries, uh, doing translatability assessments, everything that happens before the translation that we find so crucial. That's where I think Capstan makes a difference today.
0: So let's move the conversation into good practice in translating tests, because I'm sure that some of our listeners are planning to translate tests uh, and would welcome your advice. So to just start with a sort of basic question, what's the difference between translation and adaptation?
1: That's an excellent question. and it's um, It's a difficult one in the sense that the literature will give you different definitions of adaptation, of adoption, and of translation. But let's say, in the world of assessments, um, to keep it relatively simple, translation is when you take the meaning and you convey it in another language, using whatever is needed in that target language, Um, And in fact, you're you're producing something that is equivalent. Uh, Translation is, um, in my mind, translation is um, looking at the source version. So let's say you're translating from English, then the source version will be the English version. Looking at the source version, trying to understand exactly what the author wanted to do, what the author thought and then do that same act, uh, convey that same meaning with the same underlying constructs in in the target language. But adaptation is something a bit broader, a bit uh, more complex. And the working definition I give for adaptation is that if a straightforward translation of your tests will put your respondents at an advantage or at a disadvantage in the target language, you have to do something with that. You have to adapt, which means you have to introduce an intentional deviation from the source version in order to maintain equivalence. An example would be, the question is, how many sides does a hexagon have? And the word for a hexagon in the target language is a six-sided figure then your translated question with a normal, perfect, uh, correct translation would be, how many sides does a six-sided figure have? Now, it's quite obvious that this question would not work the same way as the English question, so there's no equivalence, even though the translation is correct. That's where you need to adapt. You have to either uh, take a different shape or you have to uh, paraphrase it. You have to find a way to um, elicit the same cognitive strategies to respond to the question and to maintain the level of difficulty. So, to summarize, an adaptation is an intentional deviation from the source when a straightforward translation would put the respondent at an advantage or at a disadvantage. And there are many, many different types of, uh, of adaptation. Uh, they can be the format, they can be um, the, the vocabulary, they can be the register. But there, um, there is very often a need to change certain concepts.
0: So, if somebody's writing a test and they want it to be uh, translated or adapted in different languages, what, what advice would you give?
1: It, it would obviously depend on the, the resources that you have, the time that you have to translate and adapt that test and, and bring it to the, the public you are aiming at. But if you don't have many resources, nevertheless, do try to find people who know the subject matter and are native speakers of the target language and ask them to look at your test before... You, you start translating it and tell you what the challenges are, what the hurdles are, so that at least you will not take everything for granted when you write your test in the, in the source language. Say you write your source, uh, source in English. Say you have, for example, words that have to match with one another. You have plain, mountain, ocean, desert, river, and you have to match that with steep, flat, salt water, fresh water, dry, that seems very obvious in, in, in English. But in some languages, uh, there are different genders and different markers for plain, mountain, ocean, desert, and river. And, and you will have to reflect that somehow in, in the descriptors in steep, flat, saltwater, freshwater. And, and suddenly, the number of combinations is much less in the target language. And that is something that could be detected by a native speaker knowing, knowing the subject. If you have a bit more resources, a translatability assessment is, uh, is really worthwhile, something that we can organize. We take um, three linguists from three different language groups who are used to um, adapting tests and they do a sort of dummy translation, a quick and dirty translation of your test and report all the hurdles uh, against which they stumble. That goes to a senior linguist um, and the senior linguist will distill that into a short concise, actionable report with some item-per-item translation guidelines that are suggested to your to the test author, and perhaps in some cases rewording without loss of meaning of the item so that it becomes a more translatable item. In a way, if your, your source version is too idiomatic and too fluent, it'll make the work of the translator's adapters much more complex. It's better to have a, a source that is clear, unambiguous and and perhaps somewhat bland, and you can still adapt it, make it more idiomatic when you administer it to, say, an English-speaking audience. But the source version should really be clear and unambiguous. Another piece of advice that I would give is, as a test author, try to think carefully whether the possible inconsistencies or ambiguities in the wording of your test, whether they're intentional or not. It helps the translator a lot to know that there is an intentional repetition or an intentional awkwardness or an intentional inconsistency because that has to be reproduced. If it's unintentional, on the other hand, and you use two different words but you, you mean the same thing and there's no reason to use two different words, the distance between those two words might be much bigger in the target language. So eliminating unintentional inconsistencies and ambiguities uh, helps the translation adaptation process tremendously.
0: And I I know that you recommend item-by-item guidelines Do you want to explain a little bit what you mean by that?
1: Yes. In in many projects, we we have test developers, uh, testing organizations, who draw up a very interesting and comprehensive set of guidelines that are general. Please check that uh, the correct answer in the source is still correct in the target. Please check that the correct uh, answer is correct for the same reasons. Please check that the incorrect answers are incorrect for the same reasons. And that goes on and on and on. But your linguists, they're paid by the word, and if they have this 25-page um, general translation adaptation guideline document that they have to take into consideration at all times. You can be sure that they will forget about it as they go forward. They will catch certain things, forget others. It's not that useful. It's much more useful to go item by item, question by question, stimulus by stimulus, uh, either the test author or the test author and a a linguist or project manager preparing the, the translation project, and to say, this pattern must be kept. Please make sure to use the same word In this segment, as in segment 150. uh, Please make sure that this word means that and not this. You know, they're very precise item per item guidelines. And ideally, in your platform, you have a system where those guidelines appear at the moment uh, when you're, you're translating, or else uh, we use CAT tools, computer-assisted translation tools. We'll put those guidelines inside the CAT tool so that the translator always has the source uh, and, and the translation guideline, and he or she must tick off. I have addressed this to go to the next segment. And the reviewers also then have the mission of um, double-checking whether each of these guidelines have been addressed uh, correctly and consistently. So you have a sort of focused guarantee that they're looking at the right things and that the things you find important in your test are being double-checked. So item-per-item guidelines, also not a big investment, it takes a bit of time, it takes a bit of doing, but it's not very expensive, and it really avoids a lot of um, misunderstandings and headaches further down the line.
0: Steve, could I ask you a, a question about how you should translate? Should you translate within a computerized assessment system, or should you export it out and translate it outside?
1: Yes, I'm, I'm a bit uh, wary of, uh, of sounding too authoritative here because technology is evolving very fast. And, and of course, I don't know everything, but I have seen that there's a, a tendency in uh, people who develop testing platforms to reinvent the wheel and uh, to believe that because their platform accommodates 20 or 30 languages, and they've made a number of tests in, in several languages they displays nicely, that they believe that this is sufficient to produce translations inside the tool. There's also a, a tendency to want to control everything. Nothing should go out of the platform. I think it is a mistake. I think because translation technology has been evolving for 30 years and is now very mature, very sophisticated. And the linguists really master those tools. Their productivity tools. Uh, a bad translator is not helped by a good CAT tool, but a good translator works much more consistently and efficiently with a good CAT tool. And so a translator uh, will be a bit at a loss if uh, he or she is forced to work inside the platform. This, that does not have all the functionalities uh, that, that the translators are used to. So yes, my advice would be work on a good export format. A widespread one is the, the tagged XML localization in the change file format. That's the, the known XLIF files, but some people do that in Excel, uh, in HTML, and it can work too. But what is important is to to export from the platform, produce the language version outside the platform with state-of-the-art computer-assisted translation tools, and then import back. If you, uh, if you export in a format that is compliant with uh, the standards, for example, with Oasis standards, it doesn't take much to make sure that every label, every piece of text falls back in the right place on the platform. Of course, you still need to ask linguists. Uh, and perhaps uh, a subject matter expert to review in context. So once everything is translated, you should check whether it looks right and falls in the right place. You have a sort of a visual optical check of your translation after the translation and the review. But let's say that the bulk of the work will happen more efficiently if it's outside the platform than inside the platform.
0: And could you? give a few examples of um, translation issues in tests where things are different to what people might expect?
1: Yes, I, I recall not so long ago, we had a beautiful one with bicycles and gears, and it was a test about a, a three-speed bicycle, I think, with a, a low gear and a middle gear and a high gear, and then an explanation of what gear ratios are. Now, in a number of languages, uh, gear ratio would be translated at something like a multiplication ratio. You demultiply your force and the gears, so the wheels, you will actually translate low gear as big wheel and uh, high gear as small wheel. And again and again, translators who uh, are not subject matter experts, they will associate the low gear with a small wheel, and the, the high gear with the large wheel, where, whereas the translation is fact just the opposite. That's a typical example where no back translation might not uh, yield any indication that this is wrong, and certainly uh, no uh, automatic review would indicate everything, and the vocabulary is, um, can be very, how would I say, delusive. You can have, for example, engineering vocabulary that um, really uses different standards across languages. Uh, IT certification that has uh, different, uh, different approaches. The words for hovering, for drop-down menus, for functions, for pivot tables, uh, are not constant uh, across languages. And the way they are used call for different verbs. So even if you have a good glossary that tells you this word is translated that way in my language, there are verbs around those. So what you do with the mouse, you you move the mouse, you hover the mouse, those words, they're usually not in the dictionaries or in the glossaries, you'll only find the mouse. So you do need to have people who are knowledgeable about the subject to work on, on test adaptations.
0: And in terms of the translation process itself, I think, if I understand right, the three real phases: preparation, translation, and and, re- and review. Uh, have I got that right?
1: Yes, that's um, a good way to to divide up the key moments. Uh, we have we have in fact four key moments. We have the first one, which is um, source optimization, but you could list that under preparation. So it's taking your starting point, your base, your source version and fine-tuning it from the linguistic and the technical point of view to make it more translatable. So that's the first stage. You could start even earlier, in fact, by giving the item authors a workshop on writing more translatable items. That's the very early stage. Then there would be Translation preparation, that would include preparing, for example, glossaries or style guides. It would include the item-per-item guidelines, uh, perhaps programming rules to detect uh, test-specific characteristics, for example, the proportional length of uh, key and distractors in a multiple choice uh, can be, can be uh, detected automatically if you program the right rules. Uh, so that's the preparation. The actual translation process, that will also depend on the resources you have. Uh, there are the ITC guidelines for test translation adaptation would recommend at least a double translation or a team translation, so it's a more sophisticated approach Than just translation and review. But time and resources don't always allow for that. So, Uh, would
0: you, you, sorry to interrupt you, would you recommend a dual translation approach for most organizations translating exams or just for those ones who have a very strong need for translation accuracy?
1: Mm. I I think when when your instrument is a high stakes instrument and there is a risk of being held liable for making your tests. uh, too difficult in the target language, for example, you you should really give consideration to a more sophisticated translation approach. And working with two different translators is a safe bet in the sense that two translators are unlikely to make the same mistake, and then the person merging the two translations will, will see what the correct version is. Also, you may have one person being very, very accurate, rendering all the information that is present in the source very precisely, but then it may sound a bit awkward, uh, whereas the second translator is more fluent, more natural, uh, it really flows, but some of the information gets lost or altered. And so when you have this, this senior linguist looking at two different versions and, and being aware of what the requirements and standards are in test translations, merging the two translations and taking the best out of each, you usually get uh, something that is of a, a much higher value, um, a much higher quality.
0: Would you recommend that for sort of standard corporate exams or IT certification exams, or just for the really high stakes ones?
1: No, I think for standard certification exams, um, if you if you succeed in recruiting uh, experienced translators, and you always have a. Uh, um, a senior translator reviewing the work of the first translator, and not just free review, but someone who has to, to document the changes he or she makes, to give a reason for the edits he or she proposes, then perhaps with two people you can go a long way already, I mean, a translator and a reviewer. But if you have the best translator in the world and no review, you're certainly going to have item bias differential item functioning you're going to have surprises things are going to slip through the nets so so two people is really the minimum Uh, my advice would be if you don't have too many resources and you want to have only only two people and not a team translation is give this extra time to your test preparation prepare ask for a translatability assessment take some time in preparing the item per item guidelines and that that extra week or those extra 10 days in um, making all the the necessary efforts before the translation project begins That will avoid many, many mistakes, errors, headaches further down the line. And under those conditions, I think a workflow with uh, one experienced translator and one reviewer can already take you a long way but I would certainly not recommend that for a really high stakes assessment. It has been asserted now in the literature that the the team translation and the the double translation reconciliation models yield better results across the board.
0: What about AI translation? I mean, I know it's a big subject, but briefly, what, what are your thoughts on AI translation?
1: I see AI as an immense help to understand the the essence of a text, to look for alternatives. And I think for for a lot of uh, repetitive, low-stakes content, I have no qualms about it. So if booking.com translates uh, feedback on hotels in, in real time, with automatic translation. I, I don't think that's a problem. I think that for tests, we are in an area where it's still much too sensitive. It's certainly a fact that AI has been over-promising and under-delivering in the field of translation, even though a lot of progress has been made. But I can give you one example of how we use it uh, internally that has uh, helped us achieve significant productivity gains and perhaps uh, some People, some experts, are not going to like this because there's a more active use of uh, machine translation here. But what we do in the CAT tool, so the CAT tool is not machine translation, that's a productivity tool, computer-assisted translation tool that works with translation memories. In the CAT tool, when you have to translate a segment, a sentence, either you've translated something similar before and then that pops up, that's the translation memory, Of course, that translation memory is useless if it has been produced by a poor translator. A good translation memory must have been uh, the product of the work of a good translator. But let's say the translation memory pops up first, then you may decide to use the translation that you've produced previously for a similar sentence that'll save you time and increase your consistency, right? Uh, But if there's nothing in that translation memory, then in the background, we have three different search machine translation engines, let's say, producing a draft translation that we don't see. The translators don't see them. They're all three paid versions, private versions, and and two of them are personalized. That means we've actually trained them with data from the projects we're working on. And what happens is that um, the translator starts typing his or her translation in the tool, And if one of the three machine translation outputs matches what the translator has just started typing, then that displays. And then the linguist can decide to use it, to edit it, or to discard it. What I like about that is that the the first impulse, the first thought, the first initiative comes from the human linguist. And if the machine output matches the linguist's first thought, Uh, then it might yield to saving time and and energy because the sentence is, let's say, completed. It's also the fact that AI now has adaptive loops. There is a machine learning algorithm It works with deep learning, so we don't understand it fully. But um, I see that machine translation can learn from its errors and gradually conform to the to the style of the translator. And with dual machine translation, there's one danger. It's that the, the fluency has increased in spectacular ways, so the machine output is much more fluent than it was in the past. There's less gibberish, but there's often a the mistranslation hidden in there that you cannot see because it sounds so good. Interesting. And so that's uh, delusive. Whereas in statistical machine translation there, you'd see, uh, you know, nonsensical translation pop-up regularly and, and you'd have more work post-editing them. But no, I think working with machine translation, post-edition, uh, rapid post-editing, should not be a taboo, but it has to be used very, very, very carefully. My my mentor said we use machine translation um, like two porcupines make love. Carefully,
0: yeah. Okay, so, and if people want to learn more about translating assessments, you mentioned the ITC guidelines. Can you just uh, fill people in on, very briefly on what those are and anywhere else you'd recommend?
1: Yes, the ITC guidelines, uh, they're, they're a sort of Bible. They're um, a compendium of, of best practices uh, they started under the guidance of uh, Professor Ronald Hamilton um, at um, amherst and uh, and now I think uh, uh, Stephen Sirecci is the leading hand in um, in the guidelines they were Uh, two editions. The second edition is from 2017. That's really a very good starting point. There are also cross-cultural survey guidelines at the University of Michigan. They're freely accessible. There is a a lot of literature uh, about uh, test and translation, test adaptation. We have a blog at Capstan. We we look at the different issues involved from various perspectives. That's uh, www.capstan.be. And I think when you look at the technical reports of the high-stakes assessments, you can learn a lot from them as well. Take PISA, for example. PISA um, uh, publishes results every three years. So,
0: when it comes down to it, what's the real reason why translating assessments well is important?
1: My starting point would be, uh, you know, (laughs) fairness, validity, reliability. Uh, I think those are the underlying values of assessments. Uh, No matter what you measure, what you certify, uh, what you will judge by looking at the performance of respondents, uh, fairness, validity, reliability are absolutely crucial. And I think these are badly affected if, um, if you have poor translations or poor adaptations of tests and exams.
0: That's a, a great place to end. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Steve. Real, real, real expertise there. And uh, I'm so pleased to have a chance to speak to you.
1: Thank you very much for hosting this, uh, John. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion.